We are in Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking today at verses 12 through 21. And before we uh, open the word of God, let us come together before him in prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, that your word does not come back to you empty, but that it, it goes out and it accomplishes exactly what it is intended to do. Your word is true. Your word is powerful. And though the nations set themselves against you, though we ourselves set ourselves against you, you are always working. You are always uh, a thousand steps ahead of us. You are always um, busy bringing forth your will, your glory, and our good. We thank you for this, and we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we would come to understand not only uh, you better, but ourselves, and that we would fall down before you as is right and worship you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, what we saw was that the conspiracy of the temple authorities and Judas has been, uh, has been revealed. Right? We, we have seen behind the curtain to exactly what is going on. In our passage today, what we learn that all of these machinations are only a part of the plan of the ultimate conspirator. There are conspirators against God, but all the while, <laughs> those conspiracies are just part of God's bigger plan. He is the ultimate conspirator. All history really is about conspiracy. Now, I'm not going to get into a bunch of conspiracy theories. We're not going to discuss the fact we never went to the moon. Just kidding, we did go to the moon. That was a joke. And we're not going to talk about the fact that, you know, heliocentrism and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the real conspiracies, the real ones, the ones that try to silence God. No, yeah, yeah, we'll talk after service. We will look today at the conspiracy, right? The story that's driving all of human history, that all the other stories, all, all other history falls into place and comes into clear view when we see the ultimate purposes of God and how he is bringing them about. Now, throughout the Olivet Discourse that we studied for three weeks, we learned that God has plans for those who conspire against his son. And this has always been the plan. He is going to destroy those who destroy his son. As was read for us today very well, uh, Psalm 2, verses 2 through 3, we read this. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth indeed set themselves, taking counsel as to how they might slip the leash and hop the fence and run wild across God's open country. This is what every human heart in some fashion wants. We don't want to be tethered. We don't want to be tied down. We don't want to be bound. We in no way want to have limits. We want to slip the leash, and run wild. This is what we want. So it's not just in high places where this conspiracy takes place. This conspiracy takes place in your very heart, in your car on the way to work, at your kitchen table. The bounds have been set, however, and men are always seeing if they can get loose of them. Fallen man conspires to silence Jesus, as we saw last week, to manipulate him to their own ends, and what, what we're seeing now is, is the fruit of that, right? These men want to silence Jesus, just like us. These men want to uh, manipulate him and use him for their own ends, just like us. And what we're going to see, what's going to be very good for us, is to see what comes of those plans. Now, theologian R.J. Rushtuni wrote this, History is not the outworking of impersonal forces, 
but a personal conflict between the forces of God and anti-God, Christ and Antichrist, with the ultimate victory assured to God and his Christ. The Bible as a whole presents a view of history as conspiracy, with Satan and man determined to assert their rights to be gods, knowing or determining good and evil for themselves. From beginning to end, this is the perspective of Scripture, and only a willful misreading of it can lead to any other position. In the beginning, at the fall, God said there will be animosity, there will be enmity between two seeds, two families, the family of Satan and the family of God. And all of human history is about this, the, these warring families. Okay, But this is not dualism that I'm, <laughs> I'm teaching here. It's not like uh, my two sons who are equal weight, equal height, boxing in the backyard, right? No, the, the forces of good and evil in God's story are not equal. They are not equal. God is bigger. God is stronger. God is the one who can get his hands all the way, his mind all the way around the whole story. So when I say that there are these two forces, I don't want you to think that they are two equal forces. What we're going to see is that they are clearly not. But all human history is about this story, the story of God's sons and Satan's sons. Since the garden, Satan has been trying to lead man who was all too willing to follow against God and his law. This conspiracy against the will of God is met by the deeper, wider, wiser, and more powerful conspiracy of God. A plan that was in the works throughout human history. Indeed, a plan that began before he, God, made anything. We read in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, that all things is very important. Is there anything that has happened or will happen? Is there any person? Is there any will? Is there any event? Is there anything that man has ever attempted to do that will fall outside of this? All things reconciled in Jesus Christ. Now, that creates a lot of, that raises a lot of questions. Raises a lot of questions for me. All things. Hmm. But what we're going to see is how we deal with these difficult uh, questions. What, what do we say to that? Right? Can you think of a, a difficult question that this raises in your mind? All things, even, even the Holocaust, even Hitler, he's going he's gonna to reconcile that in Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Right? And, and the point that we're going to come to if we watch the disciples is not that we can completely explain it. Okay? If you want a full explanation of how this works, you've come to the wrong place. I'm not going to give it because it's not necessary, right? Because the point is that we fall down, we fall down and worship him. This kind of revelation isn't the kind of revelation that puts us at our philosophical questions at ease. It's the kind that stops our mouth. God wins. Jesus defeated Satan and, and is defeating all his enemies as Christ's body goes forth and conquers the whole world in Christ. Now, I've, I've explained this. Well, there's a lot of ways to explain this. Does, does Jesus win? Does he win? Well, what did he say he was going to do? He said he was going to stop death. And in the end, will every human being be resurrected? Yes. Right? O only the good people aren't resurrected. All people are resurrected. And if all people are resurrected, what does he do to death? He ends it. He defeats it. He utterly defeats it. But that's a very big idea. 
What I like to explain that the church is winning, that the church is going out into this world and is in fact conquering, as I said a few weeks ago, I like to just highlight refrigeration. Right? As the gospel goes out and takes effect, right, takes a hold of the world, what we're doing is reversing the effects of death. And you can see it in the cow that's been living in my fridge, in my freezer, for maybe a year now. Right? This is what I'm talking about. We, we can, there are people now living in, to be 110, 120 years old. Death is, in fact, losing on a lot of fronts. Now, does it ultimately win? Sure. But as we go, right, it says in Isaiah that a 100-year-old man and at some point will be considered young, just like they were in Genesis. So what we need to do is not watch CNN, not watch Fox News, right, not watch the State of the Union and people ripping up speeches and act like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. What we need to do is simply go to the freezer and open it and stick our face in. Be like, take that death. God's plans have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. Now, what I want us to consider today is our reaction to God's conspiracy. Once we start to see this in Scripture, what is our reaction to it? How does God's conspiracy shape our faith, our daily walk? Right? What, what is supposed to be our response to this? So let's dive into the text. Let's go to Mark chapter 14 and look at verses 12 through 16. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare? Um, I'm sorry. Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where? I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and lo, found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now the Passover, in origin, was a household festival, something that you were supposed to do in your house. And since King Josiah's reign in 2 Kings chapter 23, ever since that time, Passover was celebrated within Jerusalem itself to allow for the slaughter of the Passover lamb within the temple precincts. You can't just slaughter the Passover lamb any old place. You've got to do it at a certain spot. Now, and as I said last week, the population of the city during Passover swells from 50,000 to 250,000. So that's a lot of people to feed. So imagine how hard it is to fit everyone in this town to eat this meal that's supposed to be eaten in Jerusalem. Right? It's going to be hard to find a place. It's going to be hard to find a place for 13 men to sit down and enjoy it. By New Testament times, Passover was strictly held within the city limits. It could not be observed, for instance, in Bethany, where we last saw Jesus having a meal with his friends. So therefore, Jesus has commissioned two of his disciples to make the necessary preparations, having engaged uh, an upstairs room where he could celebrate the Passover with the disciples undisturbed. Now, I wanted to say this right out of the gate. What, we, what this account doesn't tell us is some miraculous event. Right? Everything that we're, that we're about to see happens, the whole plan that Jesus has is something he arranged ahead of time. This, this is sometimes confused as if, Right? They just, oh, follow the man with a water jug, and he just happens to have a room. That's, and it's all been prepared like, like the Lord has gone, the Spirit of God has gone before him and done this. That, that's not what happened here. <laughs> what we're going to see right, in the context of the story is that Jesus is conspiring against the authorities of the temple 
And he has planned all of this out very thoroughly, very carefully. But first, before we look at the specific things that Jesus has done to plot this meal with his friends in the city limits, let us look at the overall context. Because what is Passover itself? How are we to understand Passover? Passover is the great conspiracy against Egypt, the great conspiracy of God against God's enemies. Now, this conspiracy took a long time. It was a plan that God had for a very, very long time, generations and generations. He planned to send Israel into Egypt for them to become slaves and and that he would go in there and liberate them and by liberating them, defeat the Egyptians. This was his plan for a very long time. And so in the midst of Jesus' conspiracy against the temple authorities, he's celebrating it right, in the context of their celebration of, this, of the great conspiracy that God had against Egypt. If you go to Genesis chapter 15, and you look at verses 13 through 14, it says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now God is telling Abram this. He's telling him, right? In four generations, I'm going to send your children into another land, and they're going to be slaves there, but I, after 400 years, will liberate them. This prediction, this plan of deliverance and blessing, is declared by God four generations before it takes place. And in bringing this about, God was directing both the righteousness and the wickedness of man. Right? Think, think of all that has to go into a plan like this. In right, Four generations from now, I'm going to send a whole nation into the midst of another nation. Now, can you <laughs> sit down for me and map out how exactly that would occur? Right? What would be your first step? Where do you even begin with a plan like that? Right? I can barely go to the grocery store and buy eggs. We do. We have a plan, but I end up coming home with like 50 other things. I don't even understand how God can plan things like this. I'm sorry, Henry. It's, it's true. Sending me to Fred Meyer, no matter how good the plan is, it's not going to work. And, and so I'm just stunned by everything that, right, the godness of God in, in a statement like this. Because if any other person made a statement like this four generations before it happened, because, I mean, when's the last time you made it? You're like, oh, this summer we're going to do X, Y, or Z. Right? <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And then later, you, you, you know, you're sitting there in the midst of the storm that did occur, unlike your plans, which didn't. And you're wondering, man, remember how we were so cocky and planned all that? That happens to me all the time. And here God is telling them what's going to happen in four generations. But along the way, he isn't just working through his children who are obeying him. He's also working through all of his children who are disobeying him to bring this about. We read in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 20, we read about Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. Their dad has died, and they're worried now that their brother, who is the most powerful person in the world, the leader of the free world, is going to exact vengeance upon them for what they have done. They're nervous, and they ought to be, right? I've seen Godfather too, right? Mikey doesn't whack his brother until mommy dies. And this is, this is something that we understand from mob families. Okay? And so here in the, if you've ever read about Joseph's brothers, they seem a lot like the characters from Godfather 2. Right? And so being taken out on a lake and shot in the back of the head seems about what they would expect. And this is man for you. This is, what, this is how man is. But listen to what Joseph says. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I... For am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Right? I'm actually with the brothers. Because if I were Joseph, I would seriously consider whacking them for what they have done. But you see that you see what the gospel does to people. You see what grace does. Because what has Joseph received that wasn't a gift from God's hand? He is clearly understands the goodness and grace and kindness of God because now he's extending it to them. He's saying, am I in the place of God? Is it my place to mete out that kind of vengeance? No, that's not my place at all. I wish the leaders of the free world now were as <laughs> humble and peaceable as he is. It's a very different way, right? It's, the, it's, the only, it's a, a way of looking at your own life and the terrible things that happen to you, the wickedness of other people, to, to be so calm about it, to be so at peace. God used the suffering and slavery, the death and resurrection of one man to bring about the blessing of the whole nation and even the world. Nothing is outside of God's control as God works generation by generation to fulfill his plan. God tells Moses how he will control the circumstances to bring his plot against Egypt to fruition. This is the last quote about this, but listen, this is now Exodus chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his, his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They will know when his wrath falls from heaven against them that who he is, and they will have no doubt. And God is saying, I'm going to work even through the rebellion and through the hardened heart of Pharaoh to do it. God knew exactly what he was going to do. All the obedience and disobedience of men was used by God as a means to bring about his plan. Joseph's people rejected him, just like Jesus' people rejected him. Right? Israel sells Joseph out. Israel is selling Jesus out. Now, for those of us who are reading the story, this is what we're right? Oh, my goodness. We know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Mark has been telling us that from the very beginning. And, and you can read this story and be very, very nervous about what God is about to do to Jesus. But you're supposed to remember the Passover story. It was what happened to Joseph outside of God's control? It was what Pharaoh, with all of his power, outside, was he acting ever outside of God's control? Now, what does, right, what does that do for our faith? What does that do for our understanding of, about who God is, our trust of him? And there are those amongst us who'd be like, well, I mean, couldn't you have done the plan without the slavery part? What's wrong with you? And in my, for, for my part, I think, yeah, you could have probably, God, if you right, really love them, had written out that part about slavery. But what does it tell us about God that he would use it, that he would take his people to that kind of level of despair before he comes and delivers them. Now, before you start feeling too bad for this generation, remember that they rejected Moses and sent Moses into exile for 40 years. So they could have been liberated 40 years earlier, but they decided not to because they couldn't recognize God's Savior when he came. Just like the Olivet Discourse. 
There's Jesus telling them what's going to happen, right? And he's going to give them 40 years to believe in him before he brings the judgment. God is very gracious. God is very long-suffering. God is very kind. And when we consider the things that are happening to us in our lives, this is the stuff that we so easily forget that makes all the difference. Because we look at the conspiracies of men, we think of the conspiracies of our own heart, and we think that those things are bigger and more powerful and have more influence than God, whose conspiracy always comes through. Are you going to defeat God with your sin? It's a very simple question. Is your sin too big for God to deal with? Are the people right now who are in little tiny clinics all over this country murdering small children, are they more powerful than God? Do you ever look at that and think, who's in charge of this? What is going on here? Why would he ever write this into the story? (laughs) And then we go and read, oh, he's going to send his children into slavery. It's not going to just happen to them. He's going to do it on purpose. Now, all of this is the background to Jesus sending his disciples out to find a place for him to eat a meal. Right? This is the part of the story that, that is all coming to the surface, but how are the Jews thinking about it? They're, they're just this, I mean, we remember about the Galileans. They come to town for the Passover, and everybody gets a little nervous because they're the kind of people that start riots. They're the kind of people that are ready to overthrow the government and, and take things into their own hands. They've forgotten right, that they weren't God in the story of the Exodus. But Jesus wants them to think of other things. Now, let's, let's look at this cloak and dagger thing that Jesus is doing here, because when you look at the details, it's quite fascinating. Men didn't carry water jugs. Culturally speaking, men didn't. And now, if you think about right, all the stories, women, how often does a man meet a woman at a well? Well, let's see, the patriarchs, three or four of them do, Jesus does, Moses does. Now, why is it that men are always meeting women at wells? Well, because in that culture, the women are the ones who go and get the water. So women generally carry water jugs. Men, of course, would carry the wine skins all the time. Of course, it's much smaller and lighter and has wine in it. So they left the ladies to go and get heavy water. It sounds about right. So and they go into the town and they're looking around and you see a man carrying a water jug. You think, oh, that's unusual. That's an unusual thing. And you're not going to point because, you know, they're trying to hunt Jesus down. So you see the man with the water jug and you think, okay, follow the man with the water jug. Like it's a prearranged signal. That, that's what's happened. Jesus knows that he wants to, it's Passover. It's his Passover. He's not going to eat it outside of Jerusalem. He's going to eat it inside Jerusalem. And he has outwitted the temple authorities to set up a place inside the city for him to go. And part of it is a prearranged signal where they follow the man with a water jug. So they follow the man with a water jug. They go to the house. And all they say is the teacher. Is the room ready for the teacher? Without any further explanation, right? My first question, if some person randomly shows up at my door, is going to be, which teacher are you talking about? Joel Olstein? No, thank you. Move along, son. You're like, oh, oh, John MacArthur's coming? Oh, yes, come, right? I would ask what teacher, because which teacher it is actually matters. The man inside this house, right, the people follow his servant with the water jug, they come to the house, they say, the teacher, and, and the room is already prepared for the teacher. Because that's another thing. It's a definite article. It's not a teacher, right? A teacher is here in the town during Passover and like to rent your room. That's not the conversation. The teacher 
Is his room ready? Yes, his room is ready. So all of these events astound the disciples. Right? They, the, the, the Greek is, it's hard, you know, these things get lost in translation, but they're, they're stunned by what, it's exactly as he described. And so the mystery about, around Jesus, right, the mojo around Jesus gets even more powerful. To them, they're just, they can't believe this. But why is it that Jesus wouldn't even tell his own people well, because we are, he, are, he knows, Jesus knows, that one of them is a traitor. He knows that one of them, right, he doesn't explain all of this to them. He just says, go and do these things. He, doesn't ex- he hasn't let them into his confidence because somebody inside of his, his inner ring, as we know, is looking to sell him out. And so he's done this all by himself. And it just makes him look more astounding, which is why a lot of people think it's a miracle, but it's not a miracle. It's just the fact that Jesus is smarter than everybody else. Right, the cloak and dagger game. He's been <laughs> he's been at it since the creation, because he's the God man, and so you're not going to outdo him when it comes to the cloak and dagger stuff. Now, the upstairs room would have been furnished with carpets and couches for guests to recline at. It would have taken some arranging to get all of this stuff in the room, especially because there's so many people who are looking to celebrate this meal. The excitement of the disciples must have been palpable at this moment. We are gonna, we're gonna be with Jesus and eat the Passover right here in the heart of the city, even though everybody's looking for him. Everybody is, right? They've put out an order saying, anyone who knows where Jesus is, come and tell the temple authorities. So just think how exciting this is, right? Jesus is already kind of an exciting guy because he does things like, you know, multiplies loaves and fish to feed a bunch of people and walks on water. And now he doesn't care about the temple authorities. He's going to eat with his buddies right where he's supposed to be eating. And and just think how excited they must be. Thrilled. And then we get to Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 18. Jesus quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. Someone who is eating with him is going to betray him. Right? Think of how excited they are. And he sits him down around the table and he says, one of you is a backstabber. But he's quoting from Psalm 41.9. And so what we must see here in, in the Old Testament scriptures that he quotes and paraphrases, we can see the biblical types and analogies that he understood his own experience. He looks to the word of God to describe what's happening to him. Right? This, is, this is something I want you to think about this as we move forward, because this is an important principle that he's teaching us. He sees his own life in the Word of God. He interprets his own life through the Word of God. But there's a couple of things going on here that I think we need to explain before we can draw a conclusion from it. First, we need to comprehend that Judas is one of Jesus' men. Right? We like to think of him at this point, in our lives, right, we know what he did. We know what happened to him. And so we don't take what everything before his backstabbery, 
We don't take it seriously. But this man was with Jesus all the time. Think about what, right? At, at the, when he says there's a traitor here, everybody in the room doesn't turn to Judas. Right? If nobody knows, they don't know who it is. So at the time, he just seems like he's, a, he's like Peter and John, and he's like everybody else, one of us. And this is very difficult for us to understand. He goes out and casts out demon and preaches the word of God, and he, he's got the power of God, and he's, he's with Jesus all of this time, experiencing what Jesus experiences. He even goes on and eats the, the Passover meal, and the Lord's, um, when he institutes the Last Supper, he's there. He doesn't kick him out first. So this Judas is of Jesus. He's with Jesus. And it's people like this, and especially what Jesus says about him here, that helps us understand very difficult verses like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? This is what he said earlier in Exodus. I will, by my outstretched hand, they will know that I am the Lord. Because I, right, it is better to have those hands reach out for healing than to reach out in vengeance. We all understand this conceptually. This whole thing here, what, what Judas teaches us is the sin of apostasy. And this one I'm going to try to go very carefully with. This is one that I try to be very gentle with, much like election, because it's very confusing. People are with Jesus and can fall away from him. Apostasy is defined as turning away from God in rebellion or apathy. God's people must be aware of inward rebelliousness as much as the outward wickedness that manifests it, right? Again, going back to Judas, everybody doesn't turn to Judas and be like, well, yeah, we can tell it's Judas that you're talking about because he's got all these external things going on. He's clearly a crook. No, there he is. He looks like everybody else, dresses like everybody else, acts like everybody else, performs the same miracles as everybody else, and inside, it's all death. Now, that terrifies me. But if you are also terrified with me, that is a very good sign. This is like the unforgivable sin. People come and they sit down and we weep together because they're worried that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And I say, listen, you believe you have, you're scared that you might have, which means you didn't. Right? So anybody who's scared they might be an apostate means that they're not an apostate. What makes me nervous is the person who thinks it's totally absurd and impossible. Then I'm like, okay, now, now we got to pray hard. Now I'm nervous. I wasn't nervous before. I'm nervous now. Apostasy is a real sin, but it is an unsettling one, and it's supposed to be. Right? We're supposed to hear about the things that happen to people who apostatize. Paul had people who do this. Jesus had people who did this. And what happens to them is terrible, and it should be. But it's not, this doctrine is not meant to have well-meaning Christians just live in a state of abject fear. That is not the point. Spurgeon said it somewhere. He's, you know, he's trying to provide in, in sermons the lumber needed to build a, you know, a ladder up into heaven. I'm not, he's not providing two-by-fours that we then beat the tar out of one another with. I'm paraphrasing. But that's not what this, this is not a board to beat each other down with. What we have to understand is that God's ways are not ours. 
And, and the best way that I can uh, under, explain this is the difference between a photograph and a movie. Right? If I followed you around, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But if I did, and I took a picture of you when you're like totally losing your cool in the Starbucks line, and I just took a snapshot of that, and I came here and I said, exhibit A of this person being apostate. Put it up. Everyone's like, man, look at the look on that person's face. Oof. Get that sinner out of here. Right? And then I follow you to the grocery store, and I see you stub your toe and you curse. Or somebody you know, puts the cart right on the back of your heel. Mm. You will get a curse word out of me if you do that to me, because it hurts. It's nasty. It's like a booby trap. Right? But if you're there and you're like, oh, I record that. We'll bring that here. And this is the way we see one another's lives. There are people right now that I know have fallen away from God. The snapshot from where I'm sitting is not good. But I always have to remember that God is watching the video. The whole thing. He sits down with his popcorn in real time, and he sees the feature-length film and says, oh, this guy's fine. Yeah, he's in the tall grass now, but watch, just watch. Watch what I'm going to do here. Right? And the guy wanders back onto the path. You're like, oh, man, I was going to make a whole, whole case of kicking that guy out of the church in that portion there where he was in the tall grass. And so when you're thinking about the sin of apostasy, remember, if you're tempted to say, oh, there it is, no. <laughs> you're just looking at photos. Right? Put it in the hands of the one. Right? It's not our responsibility. There is someone watching the movie, and he knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's looking for. Now, Jesus says, the Son of Man will go as it is written of him. That alone, like, just think about that statement. Think about if they're all sitting there listening to him, and they hear that one of them is a traitor. And not only that, it was written of that he would be a traitor. And Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? And, and this, this whole episode fills them with sorrow, it says in the text, Rightfully so. Because here is Jesus, and, and, and we were so excited, and we're finally at Passover, and here he's finally going to do some big, right, big thing to take over the city, I'm sure. They're, they're so excited about all the possibilities, and what he has to tell them is not only that one of them is a backstabber, but that God always knew there would be a backstabber in their midst, and the son is going to let it happen. Who is this guy? What is he all about? What is the plan here? And the foreknowledge of God is also presented here. God knew what was going to happen. Because God always knows what's going to happen. He knows not only what is happening, what could have happened, and didn't. Uh, John Piper said it. God is doing 10 million things in your life. You're maybe aware of 14 of them. Right? I mean, this is is how God is. And and, and for them, they're they're seeing it. They're hearing Jesus. And it, it fills them with sorrow. Right? Because it tempts our hearts towards what? Fatalism. Fatalism is that idea that it doesn't matter what I do or don't do. It doesn't matter what I do or don't do. God already figured the whole thing out. So not only do we have apostasy sitting here staring at us in the face, we have this fatalism staring us in the face. If God wrote the whole story at the very beginning, what's the point of even living it? And these are difficult questions. And what does Mark do? Turn with me now and look at the verses where he shows the difficult theological questions. One by one, the disciples say, could you please explain foreordination? Uh, Jesus, could you please explain apostasy? 
Is that, is that what happens? What is Mark's point of, of showing us this? Right? Oh, here's Jesus and the apostles, the guys who go on and write the New Testament. Wouldn't it be nice if they had a dialogue now that explained some of the most difficult theological <laughs> concepts and, and they recorded everything that was said? Right? That would be awesome. But that's not what happens. And this is Mark's point. This is what, he's writing this story so that you can learn to be like the disciples. Because they see Jesus and it's confusing. They're full of sorrow because of the circumstances. God is, is other. And one of them is going to turn on him. And they don't know who it is. They don't turn and say, is it him or is it him? They say, is it me? Standing before him, sitting there in the midst of these circumstances, they look inward. Is it me? No finger pointing, no distracting theological debates. What this part is about is is the same thing Job learned. Behold your God. He knew what they were going to do to him, and he let them do it. He knew what it was going to cost all of his disciples, and he did it anyway. He knows the story because he wrote the story, and he's not backing away from it. He's leaning into it. And when we see this God, the, the response, the proper response is inward reflection. Right? They're no longer even asking, who are you, Jesus? They're asking, who am I? And they're inviting him to speak a word of judgment into their life. Because now he's going to, right? They're leaving it completely up to him. Is it me? I'm not concerned about him right now. I'm not concerned about anything. You need to tell me who I am. You need to tell me if I'm a traitor. When is the last time you sat down before the face of Jesus, looking into the hard, at times, word of God, and asked him to give you a word of judgment? That's what the word of God is meant to do. But this is not the only lesson. This is not the only lesson. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 23 through 31. This is what it says. This is the word of God from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Just a little context here. The disciples at this point have become the apostles. They have the Spirit of God on them. They've been arrested, and they're being threatened now because the temple authorities, the same ones who killed Jesus, want them to stop preaching about Jesus. Okay. So when they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and elders had said to them, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled all with the Holy Spirit and and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The apostles returned from persecution by the same council that had executed Jesus. And verse 24 says, they lifted up their voice in communal prayer. Now, when is the last time you were suffering and the first response you you had was to to pray? Right? Jesus saw in Psalm 41, Jesus sees in the word of God the way to interpret what's going on in his own life. And what we see with the apostles is the same exact thing. Because they unite, right? In their mind, they understand they're, right, conspiring against us just like they conspired against him. And so who are we going to turn to? Who do they turn to? The only one who can, right? The only one who who is a greater conspirator than their enemies. The one who created the heavens and the earth. They know who their God is and they're going to him because he is the one who can save them. And they talk about the fact that everything that happened to Jesus was what God had ordained to happen to Jesus. It's not fatalism, and it's not, you know, looking to the skies with wonder, saying, what in the world are you doing to me? Because they know that the one who made the heavens and the earth also has a plan. They know it because they're a part of it. They see themselves in it. They see that no matter what their enemies do and how their enemies threaten them, the one who stands in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, his plans are more powerful. His arms are more powerful. His plans are better. He is the, the one directing both the wickedness and the righteousness of men. Like Job, Jesus' enemies were permitted to do him harm within the bounds set by God. Now, we could have a very long, difficult theological conversation about why that I can't answer. Why? Does God call the sons of of God together and say, listen, here is my servant, and you will go this far and no further. And you think, oh, okay, good. And then you see how far they actually go. Right? Here is my son. You can go and you can do to him exactly what I have ordained. You will go this far and no further. And what we want to do is get lost in why, instead of drawing comfort from the fact that he says you will go this far and no further. So that while you're sitting there at the sickbed, when you're sitting there holding your wife's hand and there's another miscarriage, when you're sitting there looking at the overflowing confusion of life, the question isn't why. The question is, thank God, God is in control. Because this is what happens. Imagine two hulking men boxing in a ring. Okay, and one guy is punching the other guy in the head. He's just, man, the jab doesn't work and the hook doesn't work and the uppercut doesn't work. This guy's head's made out of solid rock. What do you do? If you don't know about boxing, this is what you do. You start punching him in the in the gut. You do body blow after body blow after body blow because if the guy's head is that one of the, he's one of those guys who nothing is going to crush his head, you're going to now punch him in the gut until he can't breathe and he falls down and you win the and you win the fight. When you can't get at the head, you go for the body. Right? Do the apostles know whose body they are? Yes, and they expect two things out of this. One, it's going to get ugly. 
Two, we're going to win. Now, whose body are you? And do you draw the comfort, right? Do you, do you draw these two conclusions? Man, it's going to get ugly. And oh boy, are we going to win. Right? And now, if, if, we, if we build our homes on those two realities, we are Christ's body, and so it's going to get ugly, and we are going to whoop them. We'd be very different people. Against the principalities and powers of the world aligned against Jesus, against the very, the hardened hearts, against every conspiracy, against you, against him, it's going to get ugly and you're going to win. The character of God is a source of humility for them, a source of self-searching, standing before our creator, we are fully aware of being mere creatures. And the proper response is to seek his judgment, to seek his word. And from his revealed character, his judgment of us, his spirit, his word, we draw the strength to obey him, to pray to him, to boldly live in his name. That, look, they're full of boldness. And do you ever sit in, uh, on the edge of your bed and think, man, I, just, I need boldness. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. I am terrified. Well, who am I? I'm the, the child of God. I, I'm a part of his body. Whew. Man, that means it's going to get ugly. And we're going to win. So here is Jesus. Right? And he's called his, his people together. He is, he is prepared a place for them. And the house in which they sit down to eat is his house. And the feast that they're about to eat is the Lamb of God. And the blood on the door of the right is his blood. The plan is his word. Because it's his Passover. Right? Is anyone going to come in there and take us out? Is anybody going to come drag us out of his house? Is there not going to be enough food for all of us? Are we not, is there not going to be enough strength? Is there not going to be enough hope? There's not enough grace, right? And, and is any d- angel of death going to cross that threshold and come in there and do us harm? No. Right? This is the pa- this is his Passover that you are here to to enjoy. This is what is set before you now is the Lamb of God. And and this feast went from this thing that was once a year to commemorate something that happened, right, in ancient history to now we come every week. And we behold the Lamb of God. We behold his conspiracy. Right? And it didn't end 2,000 years ago. It's still going on. And how is he doing? How is he doing? And so you look at it and you say, look, I am part of this body. Look at it. It's right there. It's right there. You're about to eat it. Who does that make you out to be? And so therefore, what, what do we know? It's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly, and we're going to win. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your plan to unite all things in Jesus. We know, Lord God, there is a great deal, not only in your word, but in our own lives, that we do not understand. We pray, God, that we would not try to be God and comprehend everything, to satiate our philosophical minds, 
to have a control, God-like control over our lives, we pray, God, that we would come and sit at your table and that we would hear your stories and that they would fill us with boldness. That we would eat your body and know who we are. And we would know that because we belong to you, the world will hate us. Because we belong to you, there will be suffering because you are the suffering servant. And we pray, God, that as we drink this cup and eat this bread, we would taste and see your goodness and know that no matter what happens, this is the, the, the victorious family of God, and we are members of it. Amen.